Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In today's episode, we're speaking with Manish Nayar, founder of Oya Ventures. Manish began his career in investment banking at Merrill Lynch and has since used this experience and his background in engineering to further the proliferation of companies in the energy transition space. When it comes to financing, investment bankers are at the forefront of how investors perceive, evaluate, and invest in deals. We get into his experience here because I want more entrepreneurs to understand the funding process. For newer technologies and green energy transition opportunities, this can be a highly capital intensive and it takes a special approach to how you're going to fund this. Manish has since focused on his energies on Oya Ventures, where he invests in opportunities with a heavy focus on being value add. To his point, he sees the check as secondary to the value he and his team aim to bring when investing in ventures. This is a great interview for those interested in how to finance and build companies in the green energy transition space. Now, enjoy the show. Manish, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Corey. I'm really excited to talk to you today. Yeah, I'm looking forward to our conversation. I think you've done some very interesting things in the world of more of the energy transition and finance. And I think they're both areas which need a lot of explanation, especially for people looking to build companies in the energy and green space. So the best way for us to start is with an introduction from yourself. So I'll hand it over to you. Sure. My name is Manish Nair, obviously, as you know. I uh chairman and founder of Oya Ventures. My background actually is in the automotive industry. I come from actually a, a family business, which made powertrain and transmission components for the North American automotive OEMs, as well as heavy equipment guys like Caterpillar and Cummins. So very heavy engineering background. I grew up in that business, ultimately ran that business after a, a brief external stint in the telecom industry. And then ultimately decided to pursue some other interests and ended up in uh, the investment banking space, working at Merrill Lynch for some time in the U.S., focused on those customers. But I was always interested in clean tech. Specifically, I was interested in clean tech products because we had this great manufacturing footprint in North America, in Canada, and, and in the U.S. And I really wanted to leverage that and really unlock opportunities in the climate space. And so in around 2009, I launched Oya Ventures and actually also launched an operating business, which is now called Oya Renewables, focused on the solar sector. And so we ideated some companies in, in the solar space focused here in Canada, specifically in Ontario, under the auspices of the Green Energy Act and the Feed-In Tariff Program. And we quickly became one of the larger developers and owners of solar projects in Ontario, but also created an to service the industry, including some 
some products back to the original thesis to find some things that we could manufacture. And now we're now Oya Ventures is really an incubator for several platform companies in the energy transition space, really looking to take advantage of the many opportunities there that we see continuing to unfold in front of us over the next several decades. Really interesting. I I didn't know about the background in the automotive space and the manufacturing there. And so when I was doing a bit of research and saw some of the the ventures that you have under Oya, I was curious yes. about the, it almost feels like a picks and shovel kind of some of your service offerings, <laughs> you know, as, as reference to, you know, to the gold industry or to the miners. So right. talk me through how investment banking influenced your thinking. And I'm always curious because I think bankers have an interesting world of seeing a lot of deals, living in a pressure cooker and dealing with ego and capital in a way that operators tend not to have. So what did you take away from that? Yeah, actually a really good question because I think that what the investment banking space really allowed me to understand is how the finance community views business, views how they think about allocating capital, what's important to them, and and really how deals happen. And so that lens has been really important, I think, because as you mentioned, my background is is very roll up your sleeves and and build things with your hands, whether it's a product or a business or providing a service. And that's really where all the magic is, actually, is is in being able to understand the opportunity and actually work on the nuts and bolts of building the business. But of course, you need the capital. And, and without the capital, there's there's only so far you can go. And so I do feel that my lens and the team's lens here is really able to bridge what the operators are looking for and what they're doing and what the, the finance community needs in order to, you know, what I'll say is make an investment bankable or, or underwrite it. And so that's been very important. Can you unpack that further for us? And the, and the reason why is, you know, I want to get into more of, of Oya and what you're focusing on and the platform you have there. But I just think it is so important to hear what is it that makes a deal bankable? What is it that that capital is attracted to? And sometimes it's not just returns. There's more to it. Yeah, there's usually a lot more to it. I think the returns are typically reflective of all the other elements, right? Typically, and from a, I'll use a typical energy transition or renewable energy project as an example, the finance community cares about the technology. How mature is it? What's the installed base? It cares about very tangible things like warranty and very intangible things like the useful life of the asset, because typically these types of opportunities are underwritten over 20 or 30 or sometimes even 50 years, depending on the technology and the amount of capital being deployed. Second is they care a lot about who the sponsor of the project is and what their balance sheet looks like, their wherewithal, and their experience operating similar assets, whether it's similar size or similar technology. And then of course, there is who the counterparty is, who will be the buyer of this renewable energy, for example, or who will the counterparty be of this other service, whatever that may be. And so when you bundle all these together, and, and then you, you think about if it's a new technology, what is the underlying technology risk itself? These are the things that 
that the finance community cares about, whether it's a debt lender, a non-recourse lender, or a recourse lender, or a preferred equity partner, for example. These are the areas that they're going to focus on. Now, with Oya and what you're doing there, talk to us more about the platform, and then ideally we can start to unpack some of the the opportunities you're pursuing and, and some of the lessons that, that can be taken from there. Sure. And we're talking about Oya Ventures. Pardon me, so yes. Yeah, that's true. You do have two companies there. So let's, let's go with Oya Ventures. Sure. So what we're focused on at Oya Ventures is there are probably three main themes. Number one, we're focused on companies and technologies and solutions that are addressing climate from an energy perspective whether that's energy generation, renewable generation, or elements of conservation, which can even include carbon capture, for example. We're very focused also on agriculture, where it meets climate change, thinking about new technology solutions that can increase yield, but still have an element of sustainability, and food security, and taking advantage of trends that we expect in climate, for example, more warmer days in Canada, for example, as an opportunity to increase food production here. And third is really how we can create more impact from a social justice perspective in in those two verticals. And we were very focused on companies that can enhance the existing platform that we've built in some synergistic way. And, and that can include providing not only capital, that could be an acquisition, it could be, it could be some project capital, but we also want to incubate technologies within our platform that would allow them to actually cross those obstacles that they typically see, as we mentioned, around financeability, being able to be underwritten at scale and, and really mature and be synergistic to our platform in the future. It could be five years out or 10 years out. And we're also looking to create an ecosystem of new companies that are tackling problems that perhaps we haven't thought about yet, but our customers in one of the other platforms are going to be looking for. Now, are you actively out there looking for deal flow or is this something where you see an opportunity and are able to build it up under your own umbrella? Like, What's the approach you take there? Yeah, it's, it's a bit of both. We love vertical integration. Uh, we think that it's very important in the climate space to control as many elements of your company's life cycle as possible in order to really unlock the true value that's really there underlying the climate economy. Being reliant on multiple different stakeholders in an already regulated environment, typically in, in energy or agriculture, is difficult enough. But then when you also have to manage a number of vendors, contractors, service providers, you're not only stripping value from your projects, but you're also potentially losing time and efficiency in scaling your business. And we think that there's a huge opportunity to unlock value. So we're always looking for opportunities like that. We're always looking for new technologies that can enhance our existing business platforms or customer or really meet growing customer needs within the platforms. And then we still are looking for new platform opportunities to build around. But I would say we get a lot of inbound deal flow, but we're always looking for for new opportunities. When deals come across your desk, what's that process like? And and I want to 
understand your perspective as a potential investor. When you see a new debt come across, what's the process? And what has perhaps there's been a deal that's been very outstanding for you and you're like, I have to follow up on this. What was that? <laughs> I can give you an example on a no-name basis because we're still right in okay. the of it right now. And we hope to close on that opportunity very soon. But as an example, we see a number of either renewable energy technology or service decks come across our, our desk. And we, in, in our OIA rules platform, are very focused on the community solar segment of the market in the U.S. And basically, community solar is running your own little utility. You build a solar plant in a particular jurisdiction, and you're not limited to selling that power to just one person, which is typically mm. the utility. You're actually able to sell the power to hundreds of people, if you like, and working with the utility. And so we have a number of public sector and affordable housing clients there. An opportunity that came across our desk was a, a geothermal technology, which was very focused at the commercial market and the mush market, the public sector, municipalities, schools, hospitals, mush. universities. I've never heard that. <laughs> and the mush market. Yeah. And this geothermal technology, we think is pretty revolutionary for the market. It can increase the yield from a geothermal solution we think in the base case five times and in the best case it could be 40 wow. or 50 times so the cost economics and, and if you know anything about geothermal these projects typically have 20 plus year paybacks so when you're increasing the heating and cooling capacity by those types of factors you really create a, a very strong economic proposition for the client and so we saw this opportunity within the platform within the renewables platform, the engineering team was able to diligence the technology. We liked it. They already were at a point where they had some pilot projects successfully running in, in cold weather climates. And we entered into a partnership with them or we will be entering into a partnership with them, which will include most likely an investment, but more importantly, access to the customers in our, within the renewables platform which will then really allow them to focus less on the business development aspects, but more so on refining the product and executing within their supply chain to deliver the product while our renewables platform focuses much more on the business development, engineering, and financing of those solutions for our existing clients. And so that's a really great example of a perfect fit in terms of a relationship with an upstart technology company. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. And it, what I'm hearing there, it's not just, here's a check. I hope you return 10 times. The check is usually the least important part, to yeah. be honest with you. I think there's a, there's a lot of folks that can write checks, but the most important relationship with an investor is the one that can help you get from the proof of concept to delivering units or services in a you know, you know, repeatable, scalable manner. Time and time again, and I think perhaps entrepreneurs don't always capitalize on this, but I've heard it a number of times in the interviews we've done that entrepreneurs even taking lesser valuation for access to bigger networks and people who have clearly the, the skills and relationships to help build that business. And yeah, I think that that's a very diligent approach. What about, I'm always curious, I'm sure you've seen entrepreneurs out there who there's a, just a a charisma a magnetism to them. They walk in the room and you, you don't even know their deal. And you're like, I would bet on him or her. 
have you seen these in your time? And what are those characteristics? What, what stood out to you? I think number one, confidence, honesty, and a real conviction in, in the team, in the solution to the problem they're trying to solve, but not too much hubris around that being the only way to crack the nut. Because I think that you know, when you when you really sit down with an entrepreneur and you really dive in and, and ask tough questions, it's really about understanding how they're going to tackle problems after you've agreed to make the investment. You know, all the other things are important, right? How big is the market? How synergistic is this? You know, how good is the technology? But typically the point when we meet in when we meet these entrepreneurs to the point when they're actually a cash flow positive business that that business has pivoted multiple times they've had to deal with a hundred obstacles and setbacks and the founders that we meet that we really feel have that grit that honest intellectual capacity and the ability to really see how how the near-term path of their business can mm. change so quickly is critical it's a really interesting point. Especially okay. in climate. Well, you know what? Way. Build on that. Why so? And, yeah. and I'm curious about the, the whole green energy space and kind of climate transition space. Yeah. Why is it there? And why do you say that? Because a lot of times the regulatory environment has not caught up. And I'll give you an example coming back to this geothermal company. I mean, there is going to be an incredible education component with the authorities having jurisdiction in, in these various states or provinces in terms of allowing the technology to be installed and connected. And there can also sometimes be a need to actually change regulatory policy, right? At a public service commission, for example. But in general, you typically see many more stakeholders in climate than you would say in a uh, technology startup, in a digital technology startup where you're probably dealing with a much more defined and light regulatory environment. Whereas in climate, you're dealing not only with local permitting authorities, but also state and federal permitting authorities. And so you can get a lot of curveballs thrown okay. pretty quickly. Yes. I was trying to think of a, a previous interview we did about the kind of green energy transition there. And yeah, this was a point that came up. I understand that there's a whole level of, of obstacles and you know kind of threats to the business that have to be dealt with. Whereas, do you find it true that there can be a lot of winners in the green space when it comes to, to ventures? And that the point of a previous guest was that if you're to look at consumer technology, it's usually one, there's one winner. There's one Facebook. There's one Slack, as an example. There was kind of one Zoom. That seems to have changed. But the point is, is that in the consumer space, you usually have one winner. But in the, the more industrial and clean energy space and technologies, there can be more than one winner. Is that true for what you see? Absolutely. I think that in general, what we're seeing in climate, specifically in energy transition, is a much more distributed infrastructure. And the focus will be much more on kind of open, open source protocols, I think, and how do things talk to each other. But the industry itself, the customer base in and of itself, and because of the high regulatory and legislative barriers that exist, the industry will continue to be fragmented for a long time. 
what works in New York is not the same as Ohio. Even from a technology perspective, you can see a lot of variation. And so I think it's going to be years and years to come before we see some sort of clear winner in the space. And it wouldn't even be, in my opinion, a technology winner. It would actually be an asset winner in terms of who's ultimately aggregating and owning and servicing these assets, many different types of assets, of many different sizes and colors, right? Because the U.S. has 50 states and there are there are more than 50 yes. regulatory environments. Yeah, the states. the states is a whole different beast in itself. You know, it it's is. massive market opportunity. But I think when it comes to things like this, every line, you cross an invisible line between 50 states and it's just almost a different country. That's absolutely correct. That's also the opportunity. True, <laughs> that's very true. How about areas where you're seeing, aside from geothermal, which sounds pretty interesting, but what other areas are you excited about opportunities in, in this kind of energy transition? A really broad spectrum, to be frank. Green hydrogen is very exciting. EV charging, well, electrification in general, whether it's stationary and whether it's fleet related in the commercial industrial market or within the public sector, such as school buses is also very exciting. And the ability to deliver grid services with storage, with energy storage of varying types, I think is a it's a completely new revenue model that we're still just at the cusp of really unlocking. Because as we see more and more distributed resources, we're going to see more and new business models and more focus on managing the grid with hundreds and thousands and millions of distributed resources. Aren't there massive challenges there in the, the, the kind of the electrification there space? Are. And when you mentioned the grid, as I understand, like the grid in the United States is 1950s technology. It is, and, and utilities move slow. <laughs> yeah. But we are seeing, but we are seeing some utilities, I believe, like the Rocky Mountain, I, I hope I got that right, in, in Vermont. They've been leading the way with pilots of, of multiple Tesla Powerwall batteries and small solar projects across the state, you know, to manage energy prices. And, and that's been a very successful pilot. They've been leading the way. They have the ability to do that because they're a smaller state with a smaller network to deploy that over and, and manage. But it is a big task. Yeah, we are dealing with aging infrastructure, but there are a lot of really interesting technologies that are coming to light and slowly starting to be adopted. You know, it starts at the at the federal level, and then it starts to trickle down to the state public service commissions and then the investor-owned utilities. And it's the same thing here in Canada as well, by the way. We are seeing more acceptance of new technologies and the truth is, it can't be avoided anymore. There's so much grid penetration now in so many markets that every utility is being forced to reckon with this. And the benefit of all of this is that you're not going to see huge infrastructure projects anymore because they're too complicated. You're going to see much more of a focus on managing the existing network with better resources. Hmm. And I'm thinking solar here when we're, when we're talking energy and talking, mm -hmm. what do you say, grid infiltration or grid penetration? Was that Grid the, penetration, yep. So is that an example of that is you've got a solar project and now you're feeding that into the grid. Is that an example of grid penetration? Right, exactly. Okay. I'm envisioning that potentially we're going to see a much more distributed power generation, not just pulling power off a dam or pulling power out of a, 
a nuclear coal yep. facility or natural gas facility. Yes. So you're going to see projects almost all over that can be feeding in and, and more even regionalized. A lot more on-site generation technology, a lot more remote, but still closer to load centers than large, as you mentioned, nuclear or coal or combined cycle gas plants. And that's happening a lot faster than we all think. Even the EIA, the Energy Administration's forecast, if you actually look at plots on a every, I think they do this every two or three years, if you look at every single graph that, and you plot them all together, we're still far exceeding, you know, the hockey stick is always much faster than they predicted. Every two years they come out we're, and we beat it the next year, you know, by a mile. So we're going to see much more electrification. We're going to see trends. And for example, New York is leading the way to, to focus much more on electric appliances, electrification of cars, actually limiting new gas connections within the city. That all is going to create a need for more electricity at completely different times than what mm -hmm. we're used to seeing. Right. So that's going to create a need for a ton of innovation. I, I just I just have to say something. This is a public vent, a venting of mine. <laughs> it pisses me right off to hear about them wanting to get rid of gas stoves. Yeah. Because I grew up in the restaurant business, trained to be a chef, and I'm like, you cannot cook without gas. So anyway, <laughs> that's my that's my vent. But interesting. I'm just going to interrupt our interview here to offer up our free masterclass on investor marketing. If you're interested in learning about the key strategies and tactics for attracting, engaging, and retaining investors, this masterclass is for you. It covers everything you need to know about how to build a successful investor marketing program for your public company. If you're a CEO, CFO, or IR pro, be sure to sign up at creativereturn.ca slash masterclass. Your investor marketing program should be an accretive use of capital, so be sure to access it at creativereturn.ca slash masterclass or click the link in the show notes. All right, so I want to come back to raising capital. Let's say I came to you or came to other, other venture firms looking to invest. Raising capital for any deal is hard. Raising capital for a climate venture or a energy transition venture, I would argue, is probably even harder. What advice do you have for entrepreneurs looking to do this? And, and how should they be approaching this? Have very clear goals on your product roadmap. What are my uses of capital? And what are the next one, two, and three milestones that I, that I need to achieve? And when will I need more capital? I mean, this is one big pillar that's important because a lot of times we see folks that have great technology, but they haven't in their own minds clearly delineated what is the discrete milestone that they need to achieve with this capital. And, and that's because the regulatory environment can sometimes be a bit uncertain. And the second thing, I mean, that's just one, one reason why. There, there are many reasons. The, the second thing is that really understand what gaps you have within your firm today that your partner can help you fill. And number three, don't shoot for the moon the, the first time you're raising capital. Because one thing that we've seen in this sector typically is the founders are trying to thread the needle just too perfectly. 
And that can be a formula for, for failure because you can really get held back significantly just under the weight of all the other things that you've got to get, get through in order to prove success and raise that next larger, bigger round of capital. And so you really need to make sure that you know what you don't know and be okay with that and not focus too much on trying to get things right. Have a clear goal, understand what you're missing, and don't get too bogged down in the details of every single element of, of uncertainty, even in the relationship with your potential investor, because that's what you guys need to work on together to grow the value of the, of the business over a few years. To me, it sounds there's a, a value to being vulnerable and saying, hey, I don't know this right now. You know, these are our goals and this is where we're going, but we're going to uncover these things. I'm not pretending. And it sounds like the kind of thing that can build trust. Trust is definitely important. And I think you create more value when you think about it this way, because we typically see entrepreneurs come to us and tell us how, how much money the idea is worth, how much work and how much time they've put into it to get to this point. But none of that actually really matters, right? What matters is what are you going to do with this capital to create this new incremental value? Because in climate, you should see the, the enterprise value of your, of your company grow exponentially as you hit milestones, particularly those milestones related to commercialization of your product that get you to that point where lenders will actually lend against your technology and, your, and the projects that you have or that your customers have. That's when you're really going to create the most value. So you've, you've mentioned basically lending and kind of financing through lending a couple of times here. And I want to understand from your, your experience, how do you manage valuations and, and capital structures in the sense that if I've got a great idea as an entrepreneur, typically you want to capture the, the best valuation you can give or take, bringing in the right investors. But I've always been curious about how these highly capital intensive businesses can bring that capital in while also protecting to a degree the ownership of the founders and the, the previous investors and not completely diluting them out. So how do you do that if you've got a $100 million build in front of you or something like that? Yeah, you're, you're typically looking at project finance in that scenario where you can separate if we're talking, let's just use this geothermal example. If you have a, a, a company that owns the technology, you can, make, you can make a typical venture investment that your listeners will probably be aware of. You get pre-money valuation. Here are my sources and uses for this capital. Like an equity investment. Yeah, it would come a straight takes. equity investment, safe note, preferred, whatever it may be. But then the pilot projects you have could be financed separately. And okay. you can think about that more as a, a non-recourse type of project or infrastructure type financing, where you could bring in a combination of a lender, obviously being most senior in the capital stack, followed by project level preferred equity, where someone is looking to hit a particular IRR plus MOIC. And then, and then you have the company, the technology company that's basically sitting last in line. And sometimes you can include grants and subsidies in there as well, depending on where this pilot project is and what's available. 
So you may not, you may not get very much cash for, for some time un, until the technology proves itself and you've generated revenue sufficient to buy out your preferred equity partner. But what you've done is you've created a track record and you do that a few times, the faster you can do that, the, the more the valuation of your, of your company will grow because now there's a proven pipeline of, of new potential projects. You should see the cost of capital of both the, the senior lender as well as the preferred equity sponsor go down over time as, they, as the perceived risk reduces. Gotcha. And so from a, a structuring standpoint, what I'm hearing is you have the, the parent entity who has got the technology and then you would create a subsidiary of sorts or another entity in which that parent company will own a slice of bottom of the stack and then you would finance that individual entity accordingly. Right. We'd see and maybe a public markets example would be not exactly the same, but like Sun Edison, right? They had what we call DevCo or Development Co, the developer and the constructor of these solar or another renewable energy projects. And then we had Yield Co, which was Terraform, a separate public company in which they had an interest. And in the real estate world, you would think about you would think about this like a REIT. A REIT owns stabilized assets and collects rent and gives out dividends to its to its unit holders, but it doesn't take all the early stage development risk of building apartment buildings. It just buys that from somebody. And so you could think about that as technology co and dev co or yield co in the same way. You hold your IP, you hold your IP here when technology co, maybe you have a partner helping you develop the assets and the development entity. And then the physical asset operating is held in a different entity. And you can finance those all separately. Okay. Interesting. How often do you have these conversations? I mean, I don't think a lot of entrepreneurs <laughs> hear these different things and I kind of nerd out on it. So yeah. uh, thank you for humoring me. Yeah. No. I'm curious about some of your background, building off of, of investment banking and how about influential setbacks you've had, mistakes made that have really set the tone for for the success you achieved later? Yeah, I think much in line with conversation today, there's been some setbacks early on that we've learned from, and I think was really the thesis for how we think about ventures and everything we've talked about today, which is underestimating early on when we first started developing and building solar projects here in Ontario, Canada, really underestimating how difficult it would be to raise, to raise debt. We thought, frankly, that solar is a well-understood technology. Our counterparty, coming back to the first thing we talked about, right? Our, our counterparty is the Ontario government. It's a fixed price contract with A-rated credit. This should be easy. Every Canadian bank... It sounds like a slam dunk. Yeah, every Canadian bank should love financing against this. But all these other elements uh, came into play. And so early on, we, we had a lot of difficulty. We lost actually a few projects because we weren't able to, to raise capital. And so we had to step back and, and really rethink how you know, we were going to build the business. And we looked at a lot of different opportunities. Actually, one of the investments here, Co-Power, one of the first investments that Oya Ventures made was in a company called Co-Power. That was a great synergistic relationship that I feel really 
solidified how I thought about what we wanted to do going forward. They were looking to, they would create a marketplace of green bonds that they would market to retail investors here in Canada, raising, call it $5,000 to $10,000 checks through and unregistered investment products. And we made a, a small investment at the time because we didn't have that much money. <laughs> and uh, we provided two or three projects to them to create the marketplace, to create the deal flow that they needed because they had to match supply and demand. That's always difficult for a startup, especially a startup finance company. And it took some time, but, but we got it done. We ended up financing three or $4 million in total with them through a number of different arrangements. And that really helped us set the stage for the next phase of our growth because we ultimately were able to prove that we were an experienced operator we were able to go to, to bank relationships at that point and with the track record and think about all these new creative ways to, to finance solar projects at that time. Yeah. What comes to mind for me from that experience for you is that we underestimate what we can do in the long term and overestimate what we can do in the short term. That's right. That's exactly right. The days are long, but the months and years are super short in this industry. <laughs> Yeah, really, really odd, hey? Yeah, we're really moving at exponential warp speed. Yeah. How do you build relationships with, I don't know the structure of your, your firm, but like with your LPs or with the investors that you come in, how, how do you build those relationships? And I, and I want to know like the, the nitty gritty. Is it sitting down with dinners with them regularly? Is it sending them handwritten letters? Is it only talking to them when they need to be talked to? Like what is... How have you been able to develop relationships, these capital relationships? The most important thing that you can do in this industry is continue to keep those in the, the investment community apprised of what's going on in your company. Because there is always an element of timing. There is always an element of following your success to get comfortable with making an investment. And also... Did this guy end up doing what he said he was going to do, right? Because, again, back to some of the points we had discussed before, it's a very fragmented industry. There's lots of opportunity. And the providers of capital, they don't have a little bit of capital. They have a lot of capital. And they want to work with people. They want to, they want to deploy more money with fewer people as much as they can because that keeps their life simple. It allows them to really focus on good operators that can help them deploy capital. And, and frankly, when they start to see other opportunities, they, they call you. They call us and say, hey, there's this opportunity. We want you to make this deal so we can just funnel more capital through you rather than build a new relationship with someone. So I think it's, it's important, like, as you mentioned, the nitty gritty. It's a lot of emails, you know, just keeping folks surprised of what's going on. It's, it's definitely lots of face-to-face. Focusing on conferences, for example, where you know that you'll see these folks, whether it's agricultural conferences or renewable energy conferences, focused on specific technologies. And then it's making the time to, to go see them where they are and just build a, build a friendship. Because ultimately, whatever you put down on a piece of paper and sign, in the best case scenario, you put that in a drawer somewhere and you never look at it because this is all the relationship, right? The, the best case scenario is you signed it, you put it in a drawer and never looked at it. And uh, 
those are the types of relationships you want to have with people. Yeah. Yeah. You never have to pull out that, yeah, that agreement and say, okay, what's our recourse? Huh? Okay. Exactly. You know, it's, I really, uh, I appreciate this advice and in the sense that I think entrepreneurs kind of look at financing as if it's just a, an event, but it is a long process. And one of our past guests who's been very successful in the fintech space and now in the diamond space, which is fascinating. Wow. So okay. that he had the a list of people on what he called the not yet in an investor list. And so exactly right. all he would do there was just email them the updates. This is what we're doing. This is what we're going to do. This is what we said we were going to do. And this is what we did. Like just keeping them, oh, okay, okay. And it's a lot of work there, but it builds that trust that leads to when when you really need that check. They've been following. They know your story and they know the progress. That's exactly right. A lot of people say that that was, how did you do that so fast? How did you get that money so fast? The longest overnight success ever, right? Of course. And by the way, it's not just with lenders. It's even with other stakeholders, lawyers. To get top tier lawyers to work with you, you've got to also show them that. There's a whole other element to this from an investing perspective is who are your advisors, right? Who are the engineering firms you're working with? Who are the, the law firms you're working with? Who are some other consultants? And there's uh, there are several levels in terms of quality, right? And believe it or not, it's not easy to hire a really well-respected law firm in the energy space. They're all busy. They all have huge clients. And so you have right. to, you know, and, and you get what you pay for, usually. <laughs> well, so talk to me about that because... You get what you pay for. And, and with lawyers, you can often get very large bills. And what do you take from that? And we've had a few lawyers on, and I'm curious to how you get the best out of those relationships and not just a, a big bill at the end of the day. There's a little cartoon that's been uh, circulating on LinkedIn. It's a guy with a hammer. He just hits this engine and he hands the owner a bill for a million dollars or or something like that. And I say, all you did was just hit it. And he says, but the most important thing was knowing where to hit it, (laughs) right? That's what you're paying me for. And a good lawyer, it's a a very similar analogy. Uh, When you're dealing with a lawyer that's seen a transaction like the one you're trying to do a hundred times, and it's a well-respected lawyer with others in, in the sector, when he tells the other side, look, this is how it is. This is what we see all the time. The conversation is quite short. You get right down to brass tacks pretty quickly. When you're dealing with lawyers that don't have that level of experience, these types of negotiations can go on. You can actually spend more money. Of course. Okay. So, so it's important to have the right lawyer that can, you know, that has seen enough that can really and not just lawyer, by the way, firm, because you're not going to have the most expensive lawyer at a firm doing your entire deal. He's just going to provide guidance and direction and other less expensive lawyers in the firm are going to do the work. But there's a lot of value to to that that can't be underestimated. And we've seen that. Okay, good points there. I'm curious about, as we aim to wrap up here, about uh, books or podcasts or media that you listen to, where you, where you like to get your information? Oh man, I read a lot. It's mostly it's it's mostly blogs and and podcasts focused around climate currents. We're talking about lawyers currents from that's put out by Norton Rose. It's a great energy transition focused podcast with a finance and legal lens. 
CIBC has a podcast also that's called, I think it's called the Sustainability Agenda, if I'm not mistaken. And then some of my favorite climate focused reading is Canary Media, which used to be Wood Mac, Wood Mackenzie's. They spun out and, and are now called Canary Media. Uh, New Project Media is a really great energy focused firm. And the New York Times and, and Bloomberg, they both have green tech sections, subscription and non subscription, which I think are great. And books. The last book I read was The Extended Mind, which is a pretty great book. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's uh, cognitive thinking or, or learning, not just with your brain, but with your body. Movements and, and gestures. It's a very, very interesting book. You should, whoever's listening, you should mind. read it. Yeah. Yeah. Extended Mind. Okay. Yeah. Oh, good stuff. With that, as we're just aiming to, to wrap up here, any final thoughts for the audience? I would just in- encourage folks that are thinking about raising capital in the clean tech space, especially those in Canada, really seek out really seek out firms because I think you'd be surprised we're, we're probably not the only ones that are thinking about things like this. You, you've definitely got the pure venture firms, but don't forget about the strategics. You know, get, getting VC money is not, you know, it, it's not always the, the, the best thing to do. Look for your strategics. You'd be surprised how much capital is out there, you know, with, with operators of businesses that can actually be synergistic for what you're looking to do. I think that's often a very overlooked segment of the market, family and friends, VC community, the government, but a lot of people don't think about folks that are running operating firms. That, that doesn't apply just to clean tech. Yeah. Well, I just want to give a, a quick point there. I, I came across a very successful marketing agency only focused on law firms. And they now have a venture arm. And an example of one of their investments is something that they're able to sell into all of their past lawyer clients. Like just a quick shoe-in, probably a phone call. Just so synergistic. And, yeah. and I think that what I'm taking from your point is, you know, look to these strategics, look to some of the operators in the business. They, they very likely have an issue that potentially could be solved by investing in somebody who's got some interesting tech. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Well, Manish, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks. Corey, it was great. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.